we doing good? We had good weekends? Yeah? We enjoying this lovely, heavy, gray weather? Everyone feeling very high energy because of it? Yeah? Oh, you can feel it. You can feel it. Um, wonderful. So, it's super nice to be here. I do know most of you, but I'm aware there's maybe some faces in the room I don't know. So just to kind of set the record straight and introduce myself, I'm Johnny. I work here at church. I'm the student pastor. If I've not met you before, I'd love to have a conversation with you afterwards. I'd love to kind of get to know your story, what you're about. Um, I'll be hanging around the service, and I'd love to have a chat. Um, now, into the sermon. If you've been with us the past few kind of weeks and months, you'll know that we have uh, been journeying through the book of Mark. We've been doing a series called The King and His Cross, and we've been asking questions about what it means to follow this king and what it means to kind of like live that kingdom lifestyle. Um, in the past few weeks, as we build up to Easter, we've done the Last Supper, we've done the Garden of Gethsemane, and this week we're at Jesus' betrayal, his trial, and his arrest. Um, and we're going to look tonight at what it means to live in the kingdom amidst chaos, amidst feeling overwhelmed, amidst feeling like there's a lot of stuff happening around us. Does that sound good? Cool. Um, so the passage this evening that we're in is Mark 14, 43 to 65. If you'd like a Bible past you, there are some scattered on the table. Feel free to pop a hand in the air. We will have it up on here, um, but somebody will get one to you. But before we do anything else, I'd like us to kind of take a moment to stop and to kind of reflect on where we are in our own lives right now, today, this Sunday. To think of where there might be some sense of chaos, some sense of being overwhelmed in our own situations, in our own relationships, in our jobs, in our families. And I'd like us to just take a second to give that stuff to God before we do anything else tonight. So that might look really different for a bunch of you. For some of you, that might mean closing your eyes. For some, that might mean uh, putting your hands out, bowing your heads. Do whatever makes you feel most comfortable in this moment. But we're just going to kind of give that to God before we go any further. And I don't know where you are this evening. Maybe, um, maybe you are one of the students in the room tonight, and you are kind of in that post-essay, pre-exam season. And you're feeling like life is just crazy right now. You feel stressed and pressured, and you're struggling to think straight. Maybe it is um, a work situation. Maybe actually right now tonight, you're kind of feeling sick in your stomach, thinking, ah, I'm already stressed and anxious for tomorrow. I don't know how I'm going to get through this week. Maybe it's a medical thing. Maybe you've heard some news recently that has caused you to kind of get pretty nervous and scared. Maybe it's a family thing. Maybe you're thinking, oh, it's coming up to Easter, and that means I see my kind of extended family and some of those relatives that don't always spark the most positive emotions in me. Maybe it's none of those things, but maybe there is something in you right now where you just feel churned up, feel overwhelmed. And right now, collectively, as a room, let us just say in our hearts between us and God, God, you know us. You love us. Thank you that you're in our lives. And right now we give our situation to you. You know where we are. You know where we've come from. You know where we're headed. And we just ask that you would still our hearts, God. Bring peace. Let us not be overwhelmed by chaos, by situations. Let us know you better those moments. Amen? Let's pray. Cool. So, let's turn to the Bible. Um, 
It's a lot of verses, but we're going to kind of like go right through them all, and then we'll kind of tweeze some stuff out of the passage. So it's Mark 14, 43 to 65. I'm going to take a quick swig. We're going to power through 20 plus verses right now. I don't want to get a case of dry mouth right in the middle. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus, yet when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priests and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself with fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements would not agree. Then some stood up and gave false testimony against him. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimonies didn't agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and they said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. It's quite a heavy, emotional passage, right? And what we have there is some pretty turbulent, unpleasant, upsetting, overwhelming, and chaotic stuff. Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest followers, one of the 12 disciples. A violent fight breaks out around them, and someone's ear gets chopped off. He's handed over to the authorities, and he's taken alone to a rigged and corrupt trial where the high priests are trying to trip him up. There is betrayal, there is violence, there is confusion, there's intimidation, there's lies. I mean, this is an example of Chaos, and chaos sounds like a dramatic word in our context. We don't really use that much in day-to-day. But what I mean by that is that this is a situation that could possibly be very overwhelming. There's so much happening. So we're going to zoom out for a bit, uh, and then we'll get back into the passage. I was trying to think. I was trying to give you guys some of my personal story and think, what's a chaotic situation I've been in recently? And I had one very recently. Um, last Saturday, I was playing laser tag. A, a and D. Has anyone played laser tag recently? There we go. Yeah, you did indeed. Um, where? Oh, what is laser tag? Guys. Well, what we're going to do, we've got a picture we're going to pop up. 
very blurry, actually. It's off my phone. But I'll tell you what laser tag is. It's basically a bunch of people put on these like electronic bodysuits, and you have these guns that have little lights on them, and you run around a smoke-filled room with like buttons and alarms and things, and you just kind of like shoot fake lasers at each other. It's kind of like space-age paintball. It, it's like, I suppose it's like a chicken's version of paintball, really. There's even less pain than that, because it's just like a light shooting at you. It's great, though. Like, honestly, £10 of Kadonas, you'll have the best 40 minutes of your life. It's really wonderful. Um, and I'm very much a pacifist. I'm the sort of person that will, like, trap spiders in cups and let them out the front door because I don't want to hurt them. But I enjoy laser tag because it is the full thrill of war without anybody getting hurt. Um, if you look up Chaos in the Dictionary, I'm pretty sure it's just a picture of me kind of, like, crouched in that smoke and lights, like, firing lasers and stuff. Um, it felt very chaotic last Saturday. At least that was my impression. Um... And I was playing last week with some of our students as part of our student weekend. As you can see, there's a photograph. What you maybe can tell a little bit is I was on Team Blue. Um, I was getting very into it. That's me crouched right in the middle. I was taking it way too seriously. There were some like eight, nine, and 10-year-olds in there having a birthday party. And there was me in like my late 20s just being like, right, let's do this. <laughs> but I was walking into the laser tag arena thinking I was going to dominate. Uh, I expected that it would be like kind of Band of Brothers or something, and I would be... Does anyone watch Band of Brothers? Yeah, great show. I would be their Captain Winters, and I would lead these people out, <laughs> and we would be victorious. Um, so we ran out there as a team, and uh, yeah, one military commander and a bunch of kind of new troops. Um, but unfortunately, as is often the way in war, things did not go according to plan. <laughs> Within minutes, Team Red had taken the upper floor. They'd pinned us back, they had the high ground, and we were just getting trounced. Um, so I decided to let out a rally cry. Kind of right from the depths of my lungs, I screamed Team Blue. I ran up the stairs. I said, let's take the high ground. I had one fist raised in the air, and I had my gun in the other. I was like Rambo, just running in. <laughs> um, I charged into that smoke-filled space, firing lasers. My keys fell out of my pocket. I started doing body rolls. Um, I was very loud and obnoxious, and immediately I was surrounded by like a gaggle of 10-year-olds who were just like firing lasers into me. And I was done. Uh, in that moment, I realized I was all alone. I realized that I had gotten caught up in the chaos of the moment. Um, and uh, 10-year-olds had basically just beaten me. Um, I had to retreat downstairs with my tail between my legs. I'd become irrational. I'd acted out. I totally lost my composure. And I charged into combat solo. And myself and my team lost that day. Because I got lost in the chaos. Now, that was like a jokey illustration, I'm aware. Um, but if we can be real, I also know that in the stressful and chaotic situations in my life, that's when I act irrational. That's when I make bad calls. That's when I kind of run into combat solo, so to speak, and I make a real mess of things. It's when I respond poorly. But the scene we see here with Jesus is pretty chaotic. It's pretty overwhelming. Yet we could be left feeling like, oh, Jesus, why don't you do a little bit more? It seems very calm, very composed there. What we see in this passage through Jesus is peace amidst violence. We see trust amidst confusion. And we see truth amidst lies. I think this is a great example of kingdom living amidst chaos. And it would be really easy for us to live lives where when there's no oppression and all that, we're the gentlest, loveliest person anyone's ever met. But then whenever there's hardship, we kick out. We fight back against people. We get hard-hearted. I think we all do this kind of in overwhelming moments. We can all be the worst version of ourselves sometimes. When we're stressed, we buckle, we snap at people. 
I want to be better at kingdom living in those crunch moments. And I'm assuming, because you're all here tonight, we all probably do a little bit, right? Because chaos happens. Like, just watch the news. There's so much going on in our world. But also look at your own personal life. There is stuff happening. We can't live a life where we avoid this. So how do we respond when that stuff happens? Jesus would have every right to feel disheartened, discouraged, angry, let down. He just had one of his closest friends in the entire world, someone he poured three years of like love and leadership development and kind of close conversation and investment into, betray him for like a sack of gold, basically. That would be really hard to bounce back from. Jesus could have decided, nah, I'm, I'm done with people for a little while. Or he could have decided in the courts, oh, you're all lying to me, um, or you're lying about me. I've done nothing wrong, and therefore, it's fine if I kind of kick out a bit. It's fine if I play a little dirty. It's the way of the world. Peter can chop off some ears if he wants because we're being kind of oppressed. But he doesn't do that. Because to match betrayal with betrayal and to match aggression with aggression or to match lies with lies isn't the way of the kingdom. And I think it's important in these moments, we use these words like kingdom. It's important to remind ourselves what that actually means. Kingdom is the rule and reign of God in our world and in our hearts now, tonight, in this moment. It is on earth as it is in heaven. It's knowing that we're saved, we're invited in as citizens into something bigger and something eternal. And the disciples maybe haven't fully kind of grasped this idea yet. But we know this from 2,000 years. We know that God's kingdom is breaking into our world now. And we're all citizens of that kingdom. We're to live as such. There's um, a parable earlier in Jesus' ministry where he talks about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed. Jesus says in the parable, though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds can come and perch on its branches. I think sometimes truth can appear small. Peace can appear small. Faith and confusion can appear small or weak. But when it grows, it is unstoppable. It's impressive beyond all doubt. And it becomes a source of life to others. Jesus' lifestyle is one where he has kingdom living at the forefront of his mind. He knows the bigger story that he's a part of here. He knows what he's going towards. He knows what he's about to do. He doesn't get consumed by the moment. There's this almost kind of ironic question uh, Jesus asks where he says, am I leading a rebellion that you come against me with swords and clubs? And the Pharisees wanted to kill him because his ideas were dangerous to them. In that world, there was this great kind of old power that held on by making corrupt trials, violent arrests, intimidation, and bribery. In some sense, it's not actually that different to other places in our world now, even our own kind of Western society, that kind of stuff exists. And now while you could undo those things with maybe more aggression or more bribery, that's not dangerous in and of itself for those things. It's just more of the same. But truth is dangerous to lies. If a super massive wealthy tech corporation, for instance, we won't name any names, gets caught out in a lie, they say that they haven't been doing something that's Facebook selling data or whatever. They lose the public's trust, sometimes forever. 
one like arrow of truth can bring down their whole empire. Truth is dangerous. Or in cultures of violence, bringing peace can actually, it can cause the kind of aggressor to freeze. It can cause people to think, hang on, these people that you said are my enemy, they're my neighbors. We share a lot of similarities. I don't want to fight them. I think peace can be dangerous to the idea of violence. Jesus was, in some respects, starting a rebellion in this moment. But it's not your kind of usual Che Guevara-style revolution rebellion thing. It's like a mustard seed rebellion, where truth and peace and trust are seeds that were planted, that took root, and that started to overthrow those old powers that ruled with violence and fear. And Jesus confidently holds onto this kingdom perspective the whole way through, because he knows this small seed is going to grow into something bigger. To live for the kingdom amidst chaos starts with having a kingdom perspective. It starts with zooming out. And we need to make that our first instinct in these moments, to make it a habit, to do it over and over again so that's our norm. In chaos, or in times where we feel overwhelmed, or stressed, or whatever, we should be asking ourselves, what is the way of the kingdom right now? If you're at home and you're like about to like snap at your kid, ask yourself, what's the way of the kingdom right now? If everyone at your work is malicious, and it's kind of stabbing people in the back and just saying, well, it's just business, ask yourself, what's the way of the kingdom right now? Living for the kingdom amidst chaos means keeping a kingdom perspective and regularly reminding ourselves, making that our habitual way of thinking. So what else do we see in Jesus here about how he acts? Next, I think we have to foster a lifestyle of closeness. Closeness to scripture and closeness to the Father's voice. Um, so I've known James all my life. You perked up right there, eh? <laughs> Somebody's afraid. Uh, but I've worked with James now for about a year. Um, and I've gotten to know him at a much closer level. Uh, and it's the same with Chuck as well and kind of other members of staff. Um, and I realized recently, I think I'm starting to pick up some habits, uh, <laughs> some expressions and ways of doing things. Well, and there, there is actually, like, if we can be very sincere, there's, there's actually an awful lot of very good spiritual stuff that I'm probably picking up. Um, but I caught myself... I caught myself with a superficial one the other day, and I don't know if it's you or if it's Chuck. I think it's maybe you that I get it from. Um, so I used to always greet people by saying, like, hey, man, or like, hey, all right, pal, how you doing? There's a thing I've noticed that you do where when I see you, you say, all right, mate. Did anybody get greeted by James tonight saying, all right, mate? Anyone? Kind of, point sort of proven. Um, I clocked myself in the past few weeks saying mate to people. And I was like, I've never been a mate guy. I've always been a man guy. <laughs> but, and I joke about this, but we see this behavior in a bunch of ways. It's like kids with their parents or younger siblings with their older siblings. It's kind of like a mimicking, a copying, a learning how to be more like the people that you follow because you're close with them. You spent time with them. And in our closeness to the word of God, in our closeness to our time with him, we learn to be more like him. We start doing as he does, copying his behavior, thinking as he did think. We see through the passage that Jesus is aware of the scriptures being fulfilled. Jesus says precisely this when he gets arrested. He quotes Daniel, 
and he talks about uh, coming in on kind of like clouds, Daniel 7. And he's even kind of mocked for it when he's told to prophesy as he's getting beaten. He knew the scriptures. He knew his place. He knew what he was about. He was very familiar and close with it. And Jesus fostered love and a closeness for the word of God through his life. And in the high pressure moments, he let that guide how he acted. When we aren't sure how to act, I think following the words of God is a pretty good way to go, right? Can't really go wrong there. And where else does Jesus maintain this closeness? I think he does so with his relationship with his father. Because where was Jesus before all this kind of kicked off? He was spending quiet time in the garden with God. He was bringing his fears, his worries about what was ahead to his father. But he was also framing it under the line of let your will be done. How often can we, when we're about to enter into like a challenging season, or it's Monday morning, we're just about to go to work or whatever, how often do we find coming to God, opening up, being honest and vulnerable about what we're afraid of, but also handing the control to him, saying, Lord, I'm dreading work tomorrow. I feel just like anxious in my stomach, but I trust in your faithfulness when I say, let your will be done that day. Or... God, I'm way in over my head with exams. I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life once I graduate. I can't think straight. But I trust you're with me, and I trust you'll always be with me. And I say, let your will be done. Is this our model? Or do we kind of spend our time worrying and then not actually bringing anything to God and trying to still hold on to control of our situations? When the storms of life are high and you're overwhelmed, I think stay close to him. Stay close to his word. And you'll live in a manner that is more in line with the kingdom than if you try and run out alone. And then lastly, our final point. What else actually does the word of God say about chaos, about when we're in situations where there's a lot going on? I think it's quite good practice to often look outside of the passage and to think, oh, well, where is this idea repeated in scripture? Um, stay close to scripture. See, this is all coming full circle. Um, Thankfully, there's a bunch of examples in the Bible about kind of chaotic situations. You've got kind of Jesus calming the storm. You've got, I think we were studied a few months back in Ephesians, the idea of not being kind of like swept by the wind and stuff with what we believe and how we live. But I thought it'd be particularly useful to look in the book of Psalms for another response. Um, if you're part of our church and maybe plugged into a small group here, you'll know we've been journeying through the book of Psalms kind of in our houses uh, on like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights and stuff. And the Psalms are a wonderful yet turbulent series of books about the highs and the lows in our lives about kind of faith moments and I wanted to read a particular psalm Psalm 46 um, we're going to kind of skip the middle but we're going to read the beginning and we're going to read the end and it says God is our refuge and strength an ever present help in trouble therefore we will not fear and though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into heartless sea Though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. Selah. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. And you might be thinking, Selah, I've never heard that word before. The Hebrew word Selah is used 74 times in the Bible. Um, 71 of which is in the book of Psalms. I believe the other three or four are in the book of Habakkuk. Um, use that in a Bible pub quiz sometime. Um, 
And if it's your first time hearing that word, let me explain kind of what it means to you. It has actually like an interesting multi-layered meaning. Salah is used as kind of both a musical mark and a kind of text instruction. Um, Psalms are kind of poems and they were often played to music, um, but they would also be read. And so Salah kind of just means stop and listen. It's thought sometimes when it was played musically that it could actually be kind of like an instrumental section where you kind of reflect on the lyrics of what's just been said. Let them kind of sit with you. The Amplified Bible, which is a translation of the Bible, um, it says salah means pause and think of that. And additionally, it can also kind of be interpreted as a form of underlining what's been said in preparation for the next passage, being like, this is important. Let the weight of this be with you for a little bit, and then we'll move on. So salah is like a contemplative breaking of thought and music to stop, pause, listen. It's to be moved by the psalm and the music and to reflect on the truth of what's being said or sung. It's like a musical amen, a kind of deep breath of, ah, that's true. Stop and listen, pause and think of that. In chaos, in overwhelming situations, we shouldn't get swept up in the storms. We shouldn't get kind of blown by gusts of wind. We should sell out. The, uh, the Christian writer, a guy called Dallas Willard, he once talked about the idea of um, ruthlessly eliminating hurry from our lives. Um, how often do we feel hurried in our lives where it's like we're spinning 20 plates at once and internally we're just being pulled in a bunch of different directions and we're like, one of these plates is going to drop and I'm making snap decisions and I feel emotionally thin and wrung out because of that. So often like hurry and panic can be the state we just always find ourselves in. It's kind of the way our culture says we should be. It's that business 24 seven culture of more, 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 now, 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 never stop, always keep on going, always be making decisions. I don't think Jesus ever really appeared particularly hurried or rushed or panicked. And I think it's because he maybe lived a lifestyle of this kind of salah. What was he doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was taking time to come to God with his worries and fears, but to also reposition himself in a place of trust and truth. Jesus regularly retreated from public life. He did solitude and rest. He salad. He stopped and listened, and he took those kind of amen breaths. So let's not always be in a state of hurry or rush pause and reflect on truth. Let's breathe when we feel overwhelmed. In chaos, let's salah. I think that's kind of like mustard seed thinking right there. It's a small thought of reflection on truth that disrupts disorder and chaos or confusion. It's a common tool that's used in um, like treating anxiety and depression is a model of thinking called CBT, which basically just means cognitive behavioral therapy. And it can be a bit complicated to explain, but essentially, it just kind of means like grabbing a thought, bringing it forward, and kind of examining it and processing it in the light of day. And in doing so, you rationalize it, 
minimize it, and that thing doesn't have actually as much power anymore. It stops that clock from getting bigger and bigger. That minimizes worry. It minimizes darkness. It minimizes chaos. And I think that's kind of really good for us in our cultures, to be honest. So how do we live more like Jesus? How do we do kingdom thinking and kingdom living when the world can be raging around us? When work from Monday to Friday feels like a challenge every single week? Or where home doesn't feel like a restful place to go back to where it should? I think it's keeping that kingdom perspective, making that a habit, making that the thing we think of first. I think it's fostering a closeness to God, to his word, means spending time with him, reading the Bible more, retreating more. And I think it's remembering that in the busyness, we should breathe, we should stop, we should listen. We should sit with the truth of what we know God's done in our lives before, what he's done in others. And we should still act. So, let's end there.